The story of Yitzchak and his deathbed brachos to his children, to Esav and to Yaakov, is one of the most dramatic and at the same time confounding stories in all of Bereshus. The drama is obvious, but so are the questions. One of which is simply, how could it be? How could it be that Yitzchak had intended to give the bracha to Esav? Didn't he realize that Esav was a Russia, that he was wicked? Didn't he realize that Yaakov was truly appropriate to be a spiritual heir? How come it was only through Rivka's intervention and ingenuity that Yaakov received the bracha to be the mamshich, the heir to Yitzchak? How come Yitzchak was planning on giving the brachos to such a wicked and evil person such as Esav? This question, so basic and fundamental, therefore unsurprisingly, gives many, many mafarshim opportunity to present various interpretations and theories to explain the story and Yitzchak's curious behavior. One basic approach is that, in fact, Yitzchak did not know. He simply did not know how bad Esav was. He did not know the true colors of Esav. The Kliyakar takes this approach, and he notes that the phrase Ba Bayamim is never said with regard to Yitzchak, the way it is said with regard to Avram. In last week's parshas, he was getting older. And the Kliyakar explains that this phrase, Ba Bayamim, refers to the fact that even as someone gets older, they retain their lucidity and their strong intelligence and their ability to see clearly. And this was a blessing that Avram had. But unfortunately, as Yitzchak got older, the Pasuk never tells us this because in fact Yitzchak was not as sharp. He didn't know everything. He couldn't tell. And he was confused. He was tricked. He was taken advantage of. He didn't realize the true nature of his son Esav. The Abarbanel says this point as well. And he adds that it wasn't necessarily a natural result of old age, but rather, Ahava mekalkeles esashura. That he loved Esav so much that he simply was blinded out of love to the true nature of Esav. Lastly, the Das Zikainim has a slightly more critical view of Yitzhak, also agreeing that Yitzhak didn't know the true nature of Esav, but not out of mere love, but rather he was blinded by a form of bribery in the sense that all the nice things that Esav had done for his father, all the flattery that he'd offered his father, that blinded Yitzchak in the same way that the Torah tells us that shochad is ye'aver e'nei chachamim, that bribery can blind even the best of judges. So too says the Dasakanim, that form of bribery had basically blinded Yitzchak. So even though all three of these mafarshim say something slightly different from each other, they all agree with the basic interpretation that the reason that Yitzchak was going to give the bracha to Esav was because he simply did not realize who Esav really was. A second alternate approach is suggested by both Or HaChayim and the Radak. Completely different. They say, of course Yitzchak knew who Esav really was. But he had wanted to give Esav the brachos because he hoped that the brachos themselves would be able to transform and to inspire Esav to become a better person. Says the Orachayim, Yitzchak was hoping that the brachos themselves would be a medium of transformation, would be an instrument of growth and help Esav get back on the right path. The Orachayim adds in a very poignant way, Ki Rasha. 
And I would add, it's not just tzaddikim, but all parents. It pains them terribly when they see their children going off the derech, as it were, doing bad things. And therefore, says the Orchayim, <clears throat> Yitzchak was mishtadel imo lehetiv. He was doing whatever he could to bring Esav back, to inspire him. He thought the brachos would do that. The Radak takes this approach as well, and he adds that we see that Avram never gave Yitzchak a bracha because he didn't need it. So too, Yitzchak had never planned on giving Yaakov a bracha because he didn't need it. The brachos were given, were intended to be given to Esav, not because he didn't realize Esav was bad. Of course he knew Esav was bad, but that's why he thought that Esav needed the brachos as opposed to Yaakov. So this is a second approach. The first approach said Yaakov, Esav tricked or somehow evaded the judgment of Yitzchak. Yitzchak didn't really know who Esav was. The second approach says, no, on the contrary, of course he knew who Esav was, and that's why he needed and deserved the brachos. Last but not least is the Sephorno. So Sephorno argues on the premise of all of the previous Mepharshim, because they all assume, as the simple reading of the Pesukim imply, that there was only one intended bracha, and that bracha was supposed to go to Esav, and the question was why. Says the Sephorno, there was always supposed to be two brachos. They were supposed to be flipped in terms of who got what, but there was always supposed to be two brachos. The first bracha, if you take a look at it, the bracha that Yaakov received, but was really intended for Esav, it's wonderful and it's great, but it's all about materialism and wealth. It has nothing to do with spirituality and the type of things we would think Yitzhak would want to pass over to Yaakov if this was a spiritual legacy type of blessing. No, says the Sforno. The plan was to maximize the strengths of each child. Yitzhak knew his children well. Esav was blessed and had many talents in the material and physical realm. And therefore, Yitzhak intended to give him a bracha of physical gifts. Yaakov, of course, was the Yoshev uh, Ohalim, the Ishtam. He was spiritually inclined, and therefore the plan was to give him a spiritual bracha. And therefore the plan was, says the Sforno, for Esav to be dominant in the physical realm. And this would actually help Yaakov, because he wouldn't be tempted by material bounty and wealth. And therefore, he could just focus on spirituality. The two brothers would work hand in hand. There was a plan that Yitzhak had, totally understanding, says Asforno, their respective strengths. And this is why, adds Asforno, in the bracha that Yaakov eventually got, which was intended for Esav, there is no reference to what is referred to as the Birkas Avram, which we see later in the beginning of Kavches, when Yaakov finally leaves and Yitzhak knows he's blessing Yaakov. There he gives them the brachos of Avram, the spiritual legacy of many multitudes of children and inheriting Eretz Yisrael. But that bracha, which was intended for Esav, didn't have anything spiritual in it, because it was supposed to be a material blessing to work hand-in-hand with Yitzhak and Yaakov. One of the key questions, if not the key moral question, in the incredible story of Yaakov, Yitzhak, Esav, and the brachos, is how could Yaakov do it? How could he deceive how could he trick his father? How could he be so dishonest? Now, the simple answer perhaps is, well, he was just listening to his mother. But even that really begs the question, you know, if your mother tells you to do something wrong, you shouldn't do it. So this is obviously a complicated question, and there are many, many different approaches. But one approach, which seems to at least be struggling indirectly with this question, is the combined comments in two different psukim in the story offered by the Ksav HaKabbalah. And in both cases, he uses characteristically brilliant insights into what seems to be just a subtle nuance of language in order to reveal 
something profound in between the lines. If we go back to the story, we recall that after Rivka overhears the request that Yitzhak had made to Esav to get him some food, to get him his favorite food so that he could give him the brachas, Rivka moves into overdrive. She quickly tells Yaakov what's going on and tells Yaakov that he should take care of that, get the meat, bring them food, the delicious delicacies to his father so that he can get the brachos before Esav comes back and gets the brachos. Rivka has this plan. She's very action-oriented as she tells Yaakov what to do. And Yaakov's initial response is quite reasonable. And he points out the obvious problem with Rivka's plan. Not the moral problem, but the practical problem. Ulai yimusheni avi, ayisi be'enav kim ta'atea. After all, he says, my brother is hairy, I am smooth skin, and perhaps my father will touch me, and I will be found, I will be caught. It will be as if I am mocking him. Uh, in his eyes, I'll be like someone who is mocking him. And in fe- instead, he'll give me a curse instead of a blessing. Right? It's an obvious problem. So, commenting on this pasuk, the Ksav Kabbalah points out that when we talk about lest or maybe uh, something will happen, the, here the Torah uses the word ulai, ulai yimusheni. However, he points out that there's another word that seems to be synonymous, and that's pen. How come the Torah uses the word ulai here, not pen. We know that there aren't really synonyms in Lashon HaKodesh. What's the difference between these two words? What do we understand from the story by the Torah's choice of the word ulai? And the Ksav Kabbalah suggests that the difference is as follows. Pen is something that you say when you're worried something bad might happen, something you don't want to occur, and you're worried pen lest that come to fruition. And he gives examples of that. In fact, instead of that, the Torah uses the word ulai. Says the Ksava Kabbalah. Isn't that interesting? With the way we would simply read the story, we understand that Yaakov is worried that he'll get caught. He doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't want to get found out. Well, if that's the case, says the Ksava Kabbalah, then he should have been saying to his mother, Pen Yimusheni, lest I get found out, my father touches my skin, I get discovered. That would be terrible. But by the very fact that instead of using the word pen, he said, Ulai. There we see, says the Ksava Kabbalah, Nizeh Nira, Kiyakov Ish Tamim, Lo Da'ato Noche Lavatel Ratzon Aviv. In fact, he was uncomfortable with his mother's plot. He was uncomfortable with what he was being asked to do. He had significant moral qualms about what he had to do, and he did not want to trick his father. Nevertheless, he was between a rock and a hard place. He wanted to listen to his mother but he was very worried and queasy about tricking his father. He would have preferred, says the Ksav Kabbalah, let his father bless who he wants to bless. He didn't want to be the one who took advantage of and tricked his father. And therefore that's why it says Ulai, as if to say in almost a subconscious way, I might get caught, and I hope I do. Ulai, something might happen, and I won't mind at all. Fascinating, fascinating insight. Continuing this theme, just a few psukim later, when nevertheless his mother responds, no, you need to do this, and don't worry, if you get cursed, I'll take the heat, I'll take the curse. So immediately, what do we read in the next pasuk after that? So he went, he fetched, he got the meat, he brought it to his mother, and his mother made it into a delicious food, the way his father liked it, and then he was ready to get ready and dressed up into his uh, costume so that he could then go and get the brachos from his father. Says the Ksavah Kabbalah, 
let's not misunderstand. While he might have had moral qualms about it, he certainly would have wanted to get the bracha, no question about that. And once he saw that, in fact, you know, even if he couldn't understand it, his mother is pushing him to do this, we would have expected he wouldn't have just gone to get the meat, he would have rushed and hurried. And in fact, many times we have similar situations where somebody in the Tanakh, one of our great heroes, is doing something very important, and certainly this would um, satisfy the standards of being called critical or important. And we see that the Torah goes out of its way to tell us that somebody ran or somebody hurried. We see this with Yaakov when he ran and hurried to take care of the guests who came to his tent. We saw this last week with Eliezer rushing and hurrying to approach Rivka once he saw her. Says the Ksava Kabbalah, giving numerous examples of this, how come we don't have a similar pasuk of Zrizus? No similar word, no similar phrase in this pasuk that indicates that Yaakov ran. He should have been rushing, he should have been going with great enthusiasm and alacrity. And yet, there's no word, there's no mention of any Mila Zrizu. There's no word or many indication that he was rushing or hurrying to do anything of the sort. And therefore, says the Ksava what can we deduce from this omission? Nevertheless, what do we see from this, he says? In fact, this is Yoreh, this indicates, this teaches, In fact, this is a further example of his mixed feelings and his very uneasy feelings and qualms about tricking his father. He didn't rush. The reason the Torah doesn't tell us he rushed is because he didn't rush. And why didn't he rush? Because even though he was forced, he was onus to listen to his mother, he did it without his heart. His heart was just not in it. He couldn't bring himself to rush. He wasn't enthusiastic about it because he really felt guilty about it. So while there's still more to say on this complex and fascinating question about Yaakov's behavior, the Ksava Kabbalah, with two different comments based on two different subtle word, uh, Diyukim, shows us that there's something much more complex in between the lines than we might have otherwise realized. Like other great biblical heroines, Rivka is initially barren, and she cannot conceive and mother a child. However, the Torah recounts that Yitzchak, her husband, davened and entreated God on her behalf, and was successful, and that shortly thereafter, she finally conceives. The Torah tells us, She was conceiving, and then we read a very famous and enigmatic pasuk. Here we are first told, Banim in plural, there's more than one child. She, as it turns out, is having twins. And they are Yisrotsutsu Bikirba, an unclear word. How should we translate that? But it, whatever it was, it was very, very difficult to the point that she declares, you know, with this going on, I can't even live. What is the point of this? And out of desperation, the Pasuk concludes, Vatelech Lidrosh Es Hashem. She went to inquire of Hashem, which we understand from the continuation and how Chazal interpreted it. She went to Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever. She wanted a nevuah, a prophetic interpretation. It was at that time that it was revealed to her that in fact it was Banim. She had twins, very different twins, each of which would be the father of great nations. But let's go back to what I think is the key word in this Pasuk, Vayis Rotetsu. How do you translate that word? What exactly does it mean? So many follow the lead of Unculus. Unculus in his Aramaic interpretation slash translation says, Vidachakin, which pretty much means something about crushed or pushing. Um, and to some extent, this is 
how many uh, translate this word. However, I'd like to share a remarkable medrash. The medrash is in Bereshus Rabbah, in Parsha Samach Gimel, Osvav. In here, the medrash cites four different opinions, four different interpretations in translating and understanding the word Vayisrotetsu, and I think each of them highlight a different uh, idea and paint a different picture of this already uh, pre-birth struggle that was taking place as these babies were both in utero between Yaakov and Esav. The first opinion we are told is that of Rabbi Yochanan, and he understands the word Vayisrotetsu from the root of Ritza, Larutz, to run. And he translates this and explains, That is to say, according to Rabbi Yochanan, it means they were running, or what we would say is pursuing. Each one, on some level, in the womb, was pursuing each other, shockingly, according to this opinion in the Medrash, not only Esau trying to kill and pursue Yitzchak, Yaakov, excuse me, but Yaakov evidently doing the same to Esau. That is the first opinion in the Medrash, that of Rabbi Yochanan. Reish Lakish disagrees, and he explains that the word Vaisrotetsu is actually a conjugation, a combination of two words, of heter and sivui. And this denotes, says Reish Lakish, different opinions or different religious or moral approaches. In other words, Whatever one thought was permitted, the other thought was usr. One thought was usr, the other thought was permissible. And here we have a completely different image and vision and description of this debate and this fight happening between Yaakov and Esav. Whereas, according to Rabbi Yochanan, they were fighting with each other in a very physical fight. Here, according to Rabbi Shlakesh, they are fighting with each other. It's mutual, but it's not a physical fight, but rather it's an intellectual fight moral fight. The third opinion is quoted in the Medrash in the name of Rabbi Brechia, B'Shem Rabbi Levi. And he says that in fact it wasn't two fighting each other. He some seems to understand like Rabbi Yochanan that it means pursuing, but here he goes out of his way to say, Says Rabbi Brecha B'Shem Rabbi Levi, it was all in one direction. Just like we will soon read about Esav pursuing Yaakov in this world as two live human beings and adults, you should know, says Rabbi Brecha B'Shem Rabbi Levi, it didn't start uh, after they were born, it didn't start because of something that Yaakov did, like we will read about with the Brachos, but rather already in Euro when he had no good reason, it was Esav pursuing, running after, trying to hurt, if not kill, Yaakov. Last but not least, we have maybe the most famous opinion, most famous because Rashi uh, succinctly paraphrases uh, it in his commentary, and that is an anonymous opinion in the Medrash, which tells us, that in fact, this means that each of them were, I'm not sure from this opinion if they're using the word in the same way that Unculus is, that they were pushing, or it means out of running, but either way, says this last opinion in the Medrash, that when Rivka would walk past certain places, different ones of her sons, different ones of the twins would be pushing or trying to run to try to escape, to try to get out there right away. So when he would pass, when she would pass 
a shul or a base medrash, a holy spiritual place, says the medrash, it was Yaakov who was pushing and kicking and trying to escape the womb. However, continues the medrash, when she would pass a base avodas kochavim, a house of avodas zara of idolatry, Esav rots. So here again, at the end of the medrash, it's actually quite clear, uh, more than I indicated a minute ago, my apologies. Here it's quite clear from the medrash that it's learning the word even in this last opinion. And there it says that Esav is trying to escape to try to get to the Avodah Zara. And here we have, as I say, yet a completely different third image that's being described. They're not fighting at all. Not like Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Shlakish that said they were fighting with each other. Not even like Rabbi Brachi, Shem Rabbi Levi, that Esav was fighting Yaakov. But rather, each one, through their natural instinct, is drawn to something that they will be pursuing with great gusto when they're actually born. And already in utero, they're not fighting with each other, but being drawn to opposite things. And here we have this vague term in the Pasuk, Bisrotetu, and four different opinions with four different images conjured up about that relationship in these different opinions in the Medrash. The drama and excitement surrounding how Yaakov obtained the brachos from Yitzchak sometimes overshadows the content of the brachos themselves. But the Torah tells us in Perak of Zion, Pasuk of Ches, that Yaakov received the following bracha, And Hashem give you from the dew of the heavens, the fatness of the earth, Rov Dagan Vitirosh, and an abundance of grain and wine. The Psukim continue, the Bracha continues, telling Yaakov that he, people will serve him, other regimes will prostrate themselves before him, you will lord over your brothers, etc., etc. Anyone who blesses you will be blessed, anyone who curses you will be cursed. Wonderful, beautiful, fantastic Brachos. However, Chazal note, and really anyone with a sensitive eye should already be bothered by the peculiar nature and the syntax in the opening word of the bracha. V'yitein lecha. And Hashem will give you v'yitel Hashemayim yishman heretz. It's a weird way uh, to begin a sentence, grammatically or from any other perspective. And God will give you, that's not how you start a bracha. Forget the technicalities of grammar, just doesn't make sense. If you'd already said one or two things, and Hashem will give you mital Hashemayim Mishman Eretz. But why would Yitzchak begin with the words V'yitein Lecha? So Rashi quotes a medrash from the Bracious Rabbah in Parsha Samach Vav, very famously that Vav, as an introductory letter we know, can mean and, true, but Vav also has a connotation of repetition. And therefore says the medrash, what the bracha really is, is Yitein Yitzchak is blessing Yaakov that Hashem will give you tremendous amounts. But don't worry, because if that ever runs out, Hashem will give you more. Every time you need, Hashem will keep on giving you. The problem with this, however, is twofold. Number one, Is it really impossible for Hashem to just give everything Yaakov needed at once? Why would... Hashem choose, why would Yitzchak choose to give Yaakov a bracha from Hashem, which requires installment plans? We would all prefer to get a huge lump sum payment if it was you know, possible 
Who would want to have to get a gift, you know, in many, many installments? Well, usually people make donations or make mortgage payments and the like over time in installments because they have to. But does Hashem have limits? Couldn't Hashem give Yaakov everything he wanted at once? Why would he do it in an installment plan? Why is that a good thing? Why is that the bracha? Moreover, this question in a certain sense is strengthened when we consider that after Esav prevails upon his brother, that on his father, excuse me, that he should also receive a bracha, one of the things that Yaakov blesses him is quite similar. In Pasuk Lamites, we read that V'ya'an Yitzchak Avi V'yomer Elav, that what did Yitzchak bless Esav? Hine mishmane ha'aretz ye moshevecha, that the fatness of the earth will be your dwelling. And not only that, but also of the dew of the heavens from above. And on some level, it seems like Esav's bracha is actually better. Unlike Yaakov, who's getting these small, you know, installment plans, but he keeps on needing a handout. When it comes to Esav, it's Mishman Ye Moshevecha. It sounds like something much more permanent, as if the Shman will be his address. You know, he's really living the good life in a very permanent sense. So how do we understand Yaakov's bracha in and of itself? The Yitain, the Yaksav Yitain, and certainly how does it stack up to the eventual bracha that Esav received? The Tzvah Emes is bothered by these questions, and he actually addresses them in a number of places. And I want to focus on a theme that he develops in two different pieces, one which was given in the year Tafrei Shlamet Vav, which is 1875 or so, and another one which he repeated and developed in Tafrei Shlamet Tess, or 1878. Says the Sfasemis, his basic thesis is as follows. Hatzadik eina rotsa lios nimser biyarats moshom davar. Rak lios nitan lo mehashem izbarach b'chol es shiyitzrach. What is important for the tzaddik, and he continues and explains more in depth and more clearly, is not the gift itself. For the tzaddik, for Yaakov, the most important thing is the relationship which is created, strengthened, and perpetuated with Hashem through the gift. But the gift, the wealth, the shman he'aretz, the tal shamayim, is not the end of itself. It's the fact that through that, he has a relationship. In that sense, he says, The very fact that it's coming from Hashem is more important than the Guf Adavar, than the gift itself. Therefore, the greatest blessing Hashem could give Yaakov was Yitain V'yachsar V'yitain. You'll have everything you need, but it'll be in a way which you'll need me. You'll daven to me, you'll come close to me, and each time you come to me, I'll give you. But that will require and maintain an ongoing relationship. On the other hand, when it came to Esav, Mishman Heretz Ye Moshevecha, you'll have everything you need, and therefore you'll have no need for me, and I'll have no need for you. You'll be out of my life, so to speak, I'll be out of yours. There'll be no connection whatsoever. As the Sfasemis elaborates on in the second piece that I mentioned, Ule Esav Amar, Shielo Hatzarichlo, Ye Ech You'll get it. Some way or another, you'll get it. But it won't be from a direct connection to me. It won't be part of an ongoing relationship with me. And this, says Esfah is the defining difference and the essence of the bracha to Yaakov. What he says is, the Nesina Shebirach Yaakov was the Dveikos B'Kabalas HaShefa Miyad HaNosein Baruch Hu. It's not the material gift 
It's the relationship that comes with the gift. And if the ikr is the relationship, then the ongoing small gifts, in a certain sense, will foster and enhance that relationship over time much more than one big gift, which would never acquire any ongoing communication between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Yaakov. The prelude to the dramatic story of Yaakov and Esav fighting over their father's bracha is the Torah's description at the beginning of Perk Kavzayin of Yitzchak's eyes starting to dim. He's losing his vision. He's becoming partially or completely blind to the extent that it becomes possible as the story unfolds for Yaakov to take the place of his brother Esav and get the brachos. Rashi lists a number of opinions from Chazal as to where all of a sudden Yitzchak's blindness came from. One opinion suggests that it was based on the smoke of the Avodah Zarah incense coming from Esav's wives. A second opinion in the Medrash suggests that it goes back much earlier to the Akedah when Yitzchak was laying on the altar and about to be killed by his father. He looked up to Shemayim, to the heavens, and the angels were crying and a tear or tears fell from the angels into his eye, and that dimmed his vision and eventually took away his sight. And finally, the third opinion that Rashi quotes is that it was actually completely new, but it was directly Hashem engineered this to happen at this moment to create the possibility to allow Yaakov to eventually get the Bechorah. Of course, there's an alternative possibility, suggested by the Ramban, that it was simply a natural result of old age something similar to what we'll read about at the end of Bracious that actually occurs to Yaakov in his old age. Be that as it may, we have the first uh, description of somebody who is blind in the Torah, and this gives rise to a very fascinating halachic discussion about what is the status of a summa, of a blind person in halacha. Is he or she obligated in the mitzvot like a healthy, sighted person or not? The Gemara in Kedushin on Daflamet Aleph Amar Aleph quotes the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, who says that a blind person is actually patur, exempt from all mitzvos. The Gemara continues and tells us a story of the great sage Rav Yosef, himself tragically blind, and how Rav Yosef offers to make a kiddush, to make a celebratory meal, if someone will confirm to him that the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda. After all, Rabbi Yehuda says blind people are exempt. But Rav Yosef himself was doing all the mitzvos, and therefore he assumes that if the halacha like Rabbi Yehuda and he's doing all these mitzvos, even though he's not obligated, he'll get a tremendous amount of reward. And that's such good news that made him so happy, he was willing to make a celebration. The story continues, however, and he realizes that in fact it's not the case. That the halacha is gadol mitzuva v'ose. You actually get more reward for doing a mitzvah that you're obligated in than if you volunteer for something that you were not obligated in. And therefore Rav Yosef doesn't miss a dime. He says, okay, in that case, I'll make a kiddush, I'll make a celebratory meal, if you'll tell me that the halacha is not like Rabbi Yehuda, that in fact I'll get more reward because I am obligated and God on the two of Yosa. Be that as it may, the implication of the Gemara in, the, in that story with Rabbi Yosef is that there may be some opinion out there that disagrees with Rabbi Yehuda. And in fact, we shall see that the Rishonim in their subsequent discussion of how to rule and how to paskin, do assume that there is this anonymous opinion, the Chachamim, who we don't have named, who actually argue with Rabbi Yehuda, and that was the back and forth that Rabbi Yosef was having about to make his kiddush or not. Before we get to that final 
conclusion and ruling about whether blind people are obligated or not in mitzvos. There's a very interesting discussion in the Achronim about understanding Rav Yehuda's opinion. Rav Yehuda said that blind people are potter for mitzvos. Well, how comprehensive was that exemption? Well, like it seems at first blush, did it include everything? Or is it somewhat limited? So the Primagodim actually has a very well-known position, very famously, a Chiddush, that even according to Rabbi Yehuda, it did not mean the blind person is, ob- is exempt from all mitzvahs. Says the Primagodim, even according to Rabbi Yehuda, a blind person is exempt only from positive mitzvahs, mitzvahs I say. But even Rabbi Yehuda would agree that a blind person is absolutely obligated in all of the mitzvahs elotase, all of the negative commandments. The note of Yehuda in a tshuva rejects this position of the prima gadim based on a comment that Tosfos makes. Tosfos says that the Chachamim came along and obligated blind people in all mitzvahs. Rabbi Yehuda says they're potter, the Chachamim had to come along and obligate them. And why did the Chachamim come along and obligate them? Because otherwise a blind person would be indistinguishable from a non-Jew. And that would be a untenable reality. That's what Toso says. So comes along the Rebbe Yehuda and says, it seems clear by implication that Tosos is rejecting the Prima Godim. Because according to the Prima Godim, a blind person is obligated in all the Lotases. In which case, that would already be sufficient basis to distinguish a blind person from a non-Jew. Why would the Chachamim have to come on and give a special Takana if blind people were already distinguishable from a non-Jew, in that they keep all the lotases. The fact that Tosos says the Chachamim felt the need to add a new additional layer, a new additional rabbinic mitzvah, because otherwise the blind people would be indistinguishable from a non-Jew, in, implies clearly, says the Nebuchadnezzar, that according to Tosvos, the blind person was totally putter. Ase, lotase, positive, negative, totally exempt. In that case, they really are no different than a non-Jew, and added. So here you have a fundamental machloket. According to the Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda's view is that they were totally exempt. According to the Prima Gadim, they were only exempt from the Assays. In a twist, the Minchas Chinuch says, even if you want to assume that they were exempt like from everything, like the Rabbi Yehuda, even that doesn't really mean everything. After all, says the Minchas Chinuch, it's inconceivable that a blind person would have less obligation than a non-Jew. And we know that a non-Jew was obligated in the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, the Noachide laws. So that would be a 2B. Prima Godim says, obligated in all the lotases. The Nodab Yudah says, Midaraisa Potter from everything. And Mechaschidach says, everything doesn't mean everything. It even means, it includes, I should say, the Mitzvah Bnei Noach. In terms of the Psak, there's a Machlokas Rishonim on Hadapaskin, but we generally follow the view that we reject Rav Yehuda, that there is this opinion of Chachamim anonymously who argue on Rav Yehuda, and most poskim assume that we paskin like them. For example, the Shulchan Aruch tells us in Archaim Simon Nun Gimel that a blind person, a Suma, could serve as a Chazin. And the Mishnah Bureau explains because we paskin against Rabbi Yehuda and we paskin that a Suma is in fact Chayev in all mitzvos.